Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's uh, go to our nation's capital and Chris Liu. He's a deputy secretary for the Department of Labor here to tell us more about the uh, just released at uh, 8.30 Wall Street time, uh, November payroll report. Uh, deputy Secretary Liu, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right, so just give us the, the, the specific details and then we'll get into things like the participation rate and so on. Sure. But uh, 178,000 on the payroll and 4.6 on unemployment. Yep, 178,000 jobs that created in the month of November that essentially matches the average that we've had uh, during 2016. Uh, over the past 74 months, uh, we've created 15.6 million private sector jobs. That continues the longest streak of job creation in history. As you said, 4.6% unemployment. Uh, that's the lowest since August of 2007 uh, in comparison to where we were at the peak of the recession, about 10%. Well, so what do you say about the wages? I mean, we were hearing earlier from Bloomberg Intelligence is Carl Riccadonna about how uh, perhaps the decline in wages that we saw in, in November was really due to a quirk really in October. So it was not uh, such a big deal. But still, why has there been such a lack of momentum in wage growth? Well, look, you're right. It, it, there, there was a, an uptick in November that some of that pulled back. So uh, over the past 12 months, wages have grown 2.5%. Uh, that's good, but it still needs to be better when you consider the long-term stagnation of wages that most American workers have felt. You know, when you take a look at this long-term trend, trend, though, in 2015, for instance, the household income grew by the fastest uh, amount in record. So um, the trend is going in the right direction, uh, but clearly much more needs to be done, which is why the president continues to call for increase in the minimum wage, why we're pushing to provide greater overtime protection to American workers. Have, have you done any work or, uh, or maybe just give us your perspective on the ability for companies to pass along the price increases that they may experience if they do increase wages? Because many companies are now able to avail themselves of labor-saving technology, which means that they don't even have to worry about passing along those increased wage costs. Well, what has been interesting, and today the White House released a new report showing how the minimum wage increases that have um, gone into effect in a number of states have not led to any decline in employment. Uh, and you actually see many companies raising wages. It's what happens when you have unemployment at 4.6%. In order to attract the workers you need and keep them, uh, wages are going to go up. And that you've, you've started to see that trend over the last couple of years. Um, one thing that has been talked about is that the uh, job growth among millennials, among the younger generation, just has lagged behind um, how concerned are you about that? What what kind of information did you kind of glean from this report? With well, I'm not sure. Right. I'm not sure there's anything particular in this report, although I think your point is an important one. Uh, it's not only millennials who are unemployed. It's millennials who are underemployed as well. Um, you know, we're in the middle of kind of longer term changes in the demographics of the uh, workforce. You have older workers who are staying longer. Uh, which is probably diminishing opportunities for younger workers. You have more young people uh, in school that weren't 20, 30 years ago. And it's one of the reasons why labor force participation is where it is right now. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next is, so if it sounds all great, then why is the labor force participation rate at the lowest level 
since 1978. Well, again, I, you know, it, it's it's hard to it's hard I, to do. And this it. has been a long term trend. I mean, with all due respect, I mean, you know, this is a move lower from a rate last month of sixty two point eight percent. Okay, now this is sixty two point seven, but this has been a long term trend. You're right. It's been a longer term trend over the last forty years, where you've seen the drop in the labor force participation. In part, it's because you have more people uh, now who are in school that um, weren't in school before. You have people. Uh, older workers, some working longer, some not working as long. It does speak to the importance of sensible policies to get people off the sidelines and into the workforce. One of the ways we know that you can do that is through paid leave policies. We have far too many um, women who are not working uh, and staying at home, and, and I shouldn't say women, fathers and mothers who are staying at home, uh, who through sensible paid leave policies uh, would be able to work again. And we've certainly seen that happen in other countries. So you were talking about how the increase in wage growth, uh, the increase in wages has been about 2.5% over the past 12 months. What's your projection for the next 12 months of what those, uh, how much those wages will increase? Well, I'm not sure I can make a projection. I will tell you, though, that um, when you have an economy that is at 4.6% unemployment, you would expect to see continued wage growth simply as employers need to pay more to keep more workers. Um, but again, it, whether it's 2.5% or 3.5%, that's just not enough. I mean, we need to, there's been a longer-term wage stagnation that's happened over the last couple of decades. The president has called for an increase in the minimum wage. It's one of the reasons why we're pushing to increase uh, the overtime salary thresholds, uh, but more broadly, why we are as focused as we are on training people for the good-paying jobs of the 21st century, whether it's advanced manufacturing, IT, healthcare. Uh, that is really the, the ultimate solution to wage uh, stagnation. If that's the solution to wage stagnation, I just want to bring your attention back to that labor force participation rate. I mean, it's been declining, but it's been declining from 2000. Before that, it was rising. So for the following 16 years, the four, the two uh, four-year terms of President Obama, uh, we've, we've seen a small uptick uh, in 2005 but then a precipitous drop. Do you think that that's because of the increased availability of credit, inexpensive credit? You know, I'm not sure I would, I would claim that as a reason as much as the demographic changes we've seen in the country. But you're right. I mean, whether it's uh, mothers and fathers who would be working uh, but aren't because of the lack of paid leave policy, whether it's younger people um, who can't find uh, employment or who are underemployed, um, there are broader demographic issues that we need to address. Um. Going forward, what are you sort of looking for with respect to where jobs are, uh, where, where, where people are gaining jobs? And what are you hoping for? What's the best case scenario uh, for employment rates over the next year? Anyway. Well I will tell you, that, I mean, we, this past month, we have seen a strong growth in professional business services, uh, construction, healthcare. Um, particularly when you look at healthcare, care, um, that's been a, a long-term uh, positive trend. Um, I would note that since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, we've uh, created 2 million jobs in the healthcare sector. So there are many, many jobs that continue to do well. Uh, we know how to get some of these other ones uh, kick-started. One of them is through uh, a long-term um, infrastructure bill, which not only creates good-paying construction jobs, but good-paying manufacturing jobs as well. Chris Liu, thank you so much for joining us.
Unbridled optimism has been the key to stock markets since the U.S. election when Donald Trump was selected as the next president of the U.S. Will it continue with us here is Peter Kenny, senior market strategist uh, at Global Markets Advisory Group. He has been in the market for more than three decades. He sits on the boards of companies. He advises governments. Uh, Peter, you have a good read on markets. How are the people you're talking about allocating now, and are they shifting after the U.S. election? Well, I think it's very interesting, Lisa. We're seeing several major themes really impacting U.S. equities specifically. And the largest of those themes, of course, is the rotation out of debt instruments and into equities because of the, the expectation that as a result of the stimulus provided by the incoming Trump administration, you will see some very significant gains in sectors of the economy that have really not really generated a lot of investor enthusiasm. And I'm speaking specifically of infrastructure and defense, areas where we have over the last eight years seen tremendous outperformance in investor enthusiasm like large cap tech probably going to be an underperforming sector moving forward, at least in 2017-2018 timeframe. Peter, I want to just press you a little bit here because this idea of infrastructure spending and more spending in the defense and aerospace industry, I mean, I got that. You can read that in, in the headlines, but the details mm -hmm. are that none of that money is going to be allocated unless it is proposed and then ratified and passed by the House and the Senate. That could take quite a while. And last time I checked, Stock markets, they love to buy the rumor, and they love to sell the news. You hit the nail on the head. Markets, particularly those sectors, are way ahead of themselves. I wrote a piece. Way overbought. Way overbought. I wrote a piece two days before the election. I said, buy infrastructure, buy U.S. Steel, buy Martin Marietta. U.S. Steel, in the last four weeks, is up 70%. And, and it was up a lot before because of those tariffs that had been previously imposed because yes. of the cheap imports. When you see a move of 30%, you're wise to take some money off the table. 70%? I, I mean, it's just, there's no technical or fundamental reason to own something in that with that kind of a move in four weeks, in my, in my opinion. Now, I, I do think that you're right about the infrastructure over the, uh, this degree of over enthusiasm for the air, for the space, and we are going to probably see some modulation in that performance, and probably a reset lower in the near term. But in the longer term, I do think it's a trend that investors must pay attention to. You know, you you started talking uh, about the rotation out of fixed income instruments and into equities. How much has that gone on already? Mm -hmm. I mean, is this is this sort of some a mm -hmm. trend that will gain momentum and accelerate? Yes. Okay. So. I th uh, let's see. November was the worst month. I mean, it was an absolute, and you know, you you Lisa, you cover losses. It was yeah, well, yeah, it was the worst month on record, depending on what ben benchmark. You, you had that on a save get key for for your columns, I think. What worst month? Worst month? Yeah, yeah. no, of course, yeah, yeah. Best worst. <laughs> so absolutely, you were spot on. Uh, absolutely, a bloodbath. Now, will that continue? I don't think to that degree. We're not going to see that sort of dramatic turn in velocity in terms of rotation, but it's a trend. Um, and, and I do think it's a trend that is going to fuel equity market appreciation.
because that rotation into equities and out-of-debt instruments is going to be dramatic. Well, can I just um, challenge that? I, one measure that I look at is the earnings yield in the S&P 500, and mm -hmm. I compare that to, uh, say, 10-year Treasury yields. And you can mm -hmm. see that that gap, the extra yield that stocks are paying above benchmark bonds, has narrowed to the lowest since 2010. At what point are people going to say, look, sort of looking to stocks as a, as a yielding investment doesn't cut it anymore. Maybe I'd be better off in Treasuries. Okay, great point. But I don't think that that's the way people look at equities. I think the way people look at equities is, hey, there's an opportunity here for price appreciation away from yield. And that expectation is what's driving this investor enthusiasm. And oftentimes, enthusiasm is not a wise investment strategy. But you have to be able to identify it to take advantage of it. I was just looking at things like CD rates, right? I mean, you know, oh. no one ever even talked about CD rates over the last, what, eight, ten years? Right. 1.85%, uh, uh, per, uh, uh, if you want to get something uh, from a Synchrony, that's the former yep. GE Capital mm -hmm. uh, Bank, a minimum balance, $2,000, uh, 1.85%. you got to open a $25,000 uh, account. So I I are you going to see more people do that, or should they just wait a little bit and see what happens? Don't make any big decisions right now? I, I think it would be uh, a mistake to make to, to draw a line in the sand, but you are going to see you are going to see people putting money into instruments even as short-lived as one year because frankly, they're accustomed to something that is significantly lower in yield and it's attractive even at 1.15%, it's very very attractive. It's a place to park money until you can well, make it's and it's guaranteed. And it's guaranteed. You know, one thing that surprises me is, um, Peter, you're not the first person to talk about this rotation out of bonds and its stocks. Uh, I don't understand about all the cash people are talking about that was sloshing around in portfolios. Why isn't it just that? Like, are, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and are you seeing people actually just using their cash to be more fully invested in the market? An interesting study was released by CSFB uh, two days ago. Uh, in the study, it was uh, highlighted that the average RIA is uh, currently modeling 55% in equities and the balance in debt instruments. Um, that is well below the historical norm. What, 60-40 historical norm? Exactly. Yeah. And that alone speaks to a shift in the way people are looking at the opportunity in equity markets. And I think that is going to that's going to turn over time. And, and it, it's not that there's no room for debt instruments in your portfolio. For heaven's sakes, you have to have them. There's a certainty there. There's a yield there that you can bank on. But I do think that people are going to step one, two, three steps outside that, that what, what they've perceived to be an acceptable norm for risk. Peter Kenny, just quickly, I was looking at the 30-year right now trades at 3.05%. The 10-year trades at 2.38%. You think uh, short-term, let's say, you know, next quarter, we're going to see a backup in rates? Uh, I, I Actually, I do. I, I think you're right. I think we will see a backup in rates, and, and I think that we've seen such a move in such a short period of time that, you know, the reversion to the mean always plays, plays a role in whether it's you're talking about uh, debt yields, whether you're talking about equities. It's, it's, it's a, whenever you see that, that kind of a move, you've you got to see a reversion.
I want to bring in Alberto Gallo, Portfolio Manager and Head of Macro Strategies uh, at Algebras Investments in London. Uh, Alberto, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so first, I want to I want to talk about sort of the the movement that we saw yesterday in, uh, in in German bond yields, in particular yields climbing to the highest of the year. Um, do you think that the ECB will start tapering in the near future, and do you think that uh, markets are adequately prepared for that? Uh, I do think they have discussed tapering. They will extend the maturity of quantitative easing from March 2017 to September or perhaps December 2017, and they will uh, taper after that. So it's an extension of maturity and then tapering. They cannot talk about it. They are afraid of uh, spooking the market. Uh, it's like Fight Club. You know, you can't talk about Fight Club. But uh, they they have to do it. Uh, data is better. Growth is better. Inflation uh, across uh, across the eurozone, despite the fears about various elections and votes that we see. So they're getting closer to their target. And also remember, Mario Draghi is going to finish his mandate in January 2019. So uh, there needs to be a transition from 80 billion euros purchases per month to something a lot to something lower. Uh, I think market expectations are very high on the ECB. Um, there's a lot of investors still thinking about QE infinity, about uh, central banks buying assets forever, um, and everyone is long bonds. So people have bought bonds for capital gains and equities for, uh, for yield, and it doesn't work. This trade is over, and the, the rotation is, is just starting. All right, so if that rotation is starting, Alberto Gallo, who is going to buy all the debt of all the banks in Europe? Where is it going to go, and how is the banking system going to survive? Well, let's remember that we still have the liquidity assistance facility of the ECB, the TLTRO in jargon, which means the ECB can still lend to banks uh, close to the deposit rate, uh, which is a very, very low rate, you know, near zero, basically. I mean, banks normally... With, uh, norm banks normally would pay, but with the TLTRO, they don't pay. Actually, they receive some money. Um, they get paid for borrowing Correct. Uh, from the ECB, so, um, especially if they're lending. So effectively, the liquidity across European banks is fine. There is no run on deposits. The problem, however, that we have in some regions is capital. So banking systems that need to um, shore up capital and uh, consolidate and improve their profitability. Alberto, how are you positioning heading into this stretch of uh, popular discontent? We have the Italian referendum on Sunday night, followed by the Austrian election, followed by uh, what promises to be a very interesting French election. Uh, just a lot of political uncertainty. How are you positioning? Well, I, I would say that after the uh, Brexit vote and after, after the U.S. elections, which um, poll agencies got wrong, every investor has been very heavily hedging um, for the Italian vote uh, this Sunday and the Austrian vote as well. So it's also at the end of the year. So everyone is very long cash and very, uh, very short on, on Italy or, or generally on Europe. So we, we have been we have been very light um, on on Italy until last week, where we saw some headlines talking about bank failures and and things that were extremely catastrophic, which were not really painting the true picture. The true picture is lack of capital, is some profitability issues, but actually the vote, the yes no vote, is very close to 50-50, and the market is pricing an 80-70 percent probability of a no. 
So I think here you're supposed to be a bit more optimistic because if the poll is wrong again and uh, actually you have a yes win for the change in the Constitution, this opens up uh, the, the road to a lot of reforms, to a lot of change, which uh, Italian governments weren't, weren't able to do uh, over the last 30 years. So uh, we're cautiously optimistic here against a market that has gone one way bearish. Caffeine, coffee, international expansion. Wait, are you gonna are you gonna buy me coffee and, and give me a, an well, option for international expansion? Well, you if you happen to be at Starbucks, I mean, you might be able to qualify. You know that they have over I think it's over fourteen hundred locations in China, and it's they want to expand even further in Asia. I bet you knew that. No, you're no. kidding. Anyway, carry I, on. I was going to say the reason I think you know that is because Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Shelley Banjo is sitting right next to you, and she's here to tell us all about Starbucks. Our and Starbucks whisper. Our Starbucks, Starbucks whisper. And, and Howard and Howard <laughs> Schultz, who's the founder of uh, Starbucks, he is uh, turning over the reins, the CEO reins rather, to Kevin. Johnson. Shelley, thanks for being with us. Tell us about this. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, this was big news yesterday. Um, you know, this guy is synonymous with Starbucks. He built Starbucks into Schultz, what Howard it is. Schultz. Howard Schultz. Yes. yes. A rags to really almost a rags to riches story. It's an amazing story. And and people are right to worry about what's going to happen because we've seen this story before. He left the company uh, between 2000 and 2008, and it did not do very well. It their sales tanked, their stock tanked, everything was kind of a mess, um, went through a couple CEOs. And during the recession, he said, I'm coming back and I'm going to write it, write, write these wrongs. And he did. And he turned it around and now it's doing really well. And so people are worried what's going to happen now once uh, once he's gone. But he's, he says that this time is different, that previously he left at the beginning of the cataclysmic financial crisis um, and that now uh, things are different. Let's talk about one thing that's different. Kevin Johnson, who is uh, coming in to fill his shoes. Uh, he's a 33-year veteran of the tech industry, joined the company last year. What are his challenges going forward and what does he bring? Kevin Johnson has a really close relationship with Howard Schultz. So they, you know, they've really forged this relationship over the past couple of years. And he's been, he's a 10 executive. He was at Microsoft for a really long time. He brought a lot of the tech stuff to Starbucks uh, that has really helped them and kind of been ahead of the curve for Starbucks. So it isn't kind of a knock on Kevin Johnson. It's just, well, what's going to happen now? You know, Schultz has this kind of gravitas. This, he's, he's looked upon as this genius. And so Kevin Johnson's an operator. And so do you need that kind of genius or do you need the operator at this point in Starbucks's, you know, kind of trajectory? I just want to correct myself. I said that Johnson joined last year. He became the chief operating officer last year, but he joined the Starbucks board in 2009, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. He's been drinking the coffee for a lot, for a lot, for a lot longer. <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, can, can we just, I just want to offer you just a moment or two to talk a little bit about Howard Schultz and his background. Uh, born in Brooklyn uh, in a public housing uh, father, I believe it, like when Howard was seven, uh, father broke his ankle. He was a truck driver. There was no health insurance. There was no income. And this has really infused the way Howard Schultz runs 
Starbucks, whether it's wage increases for employees or his commitment to social issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why there's a lot of the whole rumor sphere yesterday was, oh, he must be going to government then because he has been so active um, with the social causes. And he even said on the on the call that they had with investors after the announcement that, you know, he Schultz is not leaving. He's still going to be chairman of the board. He's going to focus on this um, reserve roasteries, um, kind of this higher end concept. It's Starbucks is trying to roll out and focus on Starbucks's social agenda. And he didn't really expand on that, but he said, you know, this is these are causes that are still really important to us and we want someone working on them full time and and Howard is going to be that person. Um, with Kevin, what could he bring to the table? What kinds of initiatives? What could he push along that would help Starbucks? Well, the best and most obvious thing is his tech uh, experience. And so that is going to continue to be important for Starbucks. They get a ton of orders, digital orders, you know, getting people through that line even faster to get their coffee, get their fix. And um, that's going to continue to be important. Their loyalty program is going to continue to be important. And those are two things that Kevin can really bring to Starbucks. The thing I'm most worried about with Kevin is their food. Starbucks has struggled to be able to really serve food. They're awesome at coffee, but their food has never been really up to par. And so in order to keep growing that um, in order to keep growing Starbucks, they're going to have to bring on good food. And I'm just not sure that Kevin Johnson has the chops to be able to do that yet. Because that'll take innovation and a certain degree of creativity to, to Correct. Fix. Yeah, definitely. Shelly Banjo, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Shelly Banjo. I wonder what her favorite Starbucks is. What? Is, By the uh, way, stock's down about two and a quarter percent. Um, I like the uh, soy misto, which is just a fancy way of saying... A coffee with hot, warm milk. <laughs> nice. That sounds pretty good right about <laughs> now. Shelly Banjo of Bloomberg Gadfly speaking with myself, Lisa Abramowitz, and Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.